Hi everyone, this is Tracy Fenton, founder of World Blue and the World Blue Academy, and welcome to the Freedom at Work podcast. I'm here to teach you how to think with a freedom-centered mindset, thrive as a freedom-centered leader, and finally, how to build a freedom-centered culture for your team or workplace. This podcast is about answering one key question. How can you, as a leader, use freedom rather than fear to unleash the full potential of individuals, teams, and organizations in order to achieve breakthrough results and change the world for the better? If you want to explore the answers, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Great to be with you. Today, we're exploring freedom at work within a small but exceptional World Blue Certified Freedom Centered culture called Boost, based in Wellington, New Zealand. My guest today is Nathan Donaldson, CEO of Boost. Boost puts their teams first so they can deliver lasting positive impact for their clients through building world-class web and mobile applications. They also just earned the most prestigious award in New Zealand called the Wellington Gold Team Award for companies that have exemplary cultures. And I'm very proud to say they have been a World Blue certified Freedom Center culture for eight years in a row. Nathan, it's a delight to have you on the show. It's great to be here, Tracy. Thanks for having me here. So Nathan, tell us a bit more about what Boost does and what inspired you to get on the path to practice freedom at work. Boost is a a small web and mobile development company. We've been in business for 19 years. Our purpose in the world is to create lasting positive impacts for our clients. And the way we do that is by focusing on our team members as our first customers. We really believe that by ensuring that they are happy and productive, we can deliver amazing things for our clients. So we build large web-based and mobile applications that help mainly New Zealanders to get more, do more, and be more. Around nine years ago, I read the book Maverick by Ricardo Semler, and that really opened my eyes to there being a different way to do things, a different way that met more of my personal goals, visions, and needs but would also deliver better business results. And after reading Maverick, I was put in touch with Tracy at World Blue, and that's really where the journey started. Often when you read books, you get inspired, but having someone there to support you to implement the processes and the tools that are needed to make really lasting change has been what's made the difference. I love that, Nathan. You know, reading Maverick and... Ricardo Semler's work, you know, that he's kind of the godfather, right, of this movement. And Semco down in Brazil, the poster child of a world-class democratic company. And I remember, you know, 20 years ago when I read that book as well, it was just such a game changer. It kind of lifts you out of your seat and gets you really excited to go down this path. And I'm so glad you did. And you're right. You can't just read the book, right? You have to figure out how to implement it. And you guys have certainly done that. And I want to get deeper into that by talking through how you guys practice freedom at work. And for our listeners who know about the freedom at work method or who might be new to it, freedom at work has three parts to it. It's about a freedom-centered mindset, freedom-centered leadership, and freedom-centered organizational design, which delivers ultimately a freedom-centered culture. So it all starts with mindset. And what we've seen at World Blue over the years working with companies all over the world is that you know, the mindset that the CEO or top leadership brings to the workplace each and every day is very important. And we often don't realize that we're operating in a mindset of fear. And when we're in a mindset of fear, right, that's when we want to build these command and control type of organizations that simply don't work in today's dynamic world. So we have to bring that mindset of freedom. But fear is inevitable in the workplace. There's always challenges and things coming up. And so, you know, Nathan, you've had such a successful run with Boost. We're going to get deeper into how you guys practice freedom at work. But let's start with just overcoming fear, right? And getting on the path to this. Have you guys had a challenge when you really had to deal with fear and how you overcame it as a leader and as an organization? Sure. As a leader in an organization, you face fear every day. But there's a, there's a couple of moments that really stand out to me where we 
we're in a place of fear, but we consciously took a step back, embraced freedom and saw amazing results. So uh, the one I'd like to tell you about is around 18 months to two years ago, uh, we were looking at the financials going into the new financial year. And for us with the way New Zealand works and our summer holidays are over Christmas, what I could see was that by the 1st of April, which was in about four months' time, five months' time, we were going to be $300,000 short. So not just $300,000 down on our budgets, but actually we would need to find $300,000 just to make it through. Mm. And you know, we're not a, a massive business, so that's a really large amount of money for us. And as the person who owns the business, of course, it comes back to me personally when I need to find that money. And you know, I, I don't have $300,000 to pump back into the business. And so what that means is that it's very easy to get straight into that fear-based mindset, to start to panic and wonder, you know, what am I going to do about this? How am I going to control the situation to get the outcome I want? How am I going to fix it? And, you know, luckily I have a wee bit of physical distance from my team. So I, I live remote from the business and come up to spend time with them every week. And that gives me some time to reflect. So on the plane ride up, I realized that I was taking a really fear-centered approach to solving this problem where, you know, my initial sort of gut reaction was to go in and tell people what to do and get things happening and start some hustle. And I realized that I needed to take a step back and give the team an opportunity to solve this problem themselves because I knew that they would get, be able to get a better result than I could. Mm. So I came to our leadership meeting and I laid out the situation. I said, look, this is where we're going to be on the 1st of April. You know, what do you guys think about this? And of course, they said, look, we need to do something about this. So I said, why don't you take a week, have a think about what we can do to help overcome the situation, and then we'll come back in a week's time and we'll start to implement the things that you guys come up with. And so they went away for a week and they came back with plans to reduce our costs over the next four to five months and plans to go out to our existing customers to drum up some new work to find new customers. And they put a plan in place. We implemented that plan over the next couple of months. And where we ended up on the 1st of April was with an extra $200,000 in the bank. So wow. we had $300,000 know, shortfall, plus we had another couple of hundred K, which for us at that time of the year, that's our sort of lowest cash period of the year. That was an outstanding result. And if I'd gone in there and come up with the solutions myself and you know, tried to control the situation, there's no way I would have been able to achieve that, you know. It was by giving them the agency and empowering them to come up with the actions that were needed that we got a much better result than I could have alone. And so that really just reinforced for me stepping back from fear and saying, well, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? And that's you know, getting everybody involved to be part of the solution. That is such an incredible story and such a great example of the power of democratizing the entire process at a time when it can feel really scary. And when, like you said, as a leader, you just, the natural inclination is to sort of go into command and control mode, right? And be like, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to solve this problem. And had you done that, that could have really been a morale crusher, right? Yeah. It's in those moments of challenge that you really see, do I believe in this philosophy, you know, freedom at work and organizational democracy to carry us through the hard times as well as the good times, because it's easy to do it when everything's going great. But when it gets challenging, you know, do you fall back into that command and control default or do you stick to your guns and move forward? And you stuck to your guns in the right way, democratic way and look at the results, but you had to yourself, right? Shift your mindset from that fear-based mindset, ask the power question. We talk about what would you do if you weren't afraid and got to that outcome I mean, it says a lot to your character totally. as a leader, yeah, to get to that place. It's really, really great, Nathan. And I think it's also, you know, if I'd gone in there and taken control, then I, I'm making the whole thing about me and not honoring the fact that there's a whole group of people whose livelihoods and purpose in the world is tied up in this. And so they need to be part of the solution because they, they want to own it as well. You know, it's, it's about them and me, not just me alone. And the fact that you did that and they found the solution and you came up with 
$200,000 plus made them better leaders, right? Gave them confidence in their ability to handle things democratically. So you move through the entire situation with a much better outcome and better leaders as a result, it sounds like. Definitely. Absolutely. And when we got to the 1st of April, the feeling of satisfaction, of being empowered and actually of being able to make a difference was huge. That's a great segue into talking about the second part of the Freedom at Work model, which is freedom-centered leadership, right? If we're going to operate our companies this way, it requires us to learn how to lead in a different way and requires us to lead from that place of freedom, like you just talked about, rather than fear and control. And we teach at World Blue that there are three core attributes to being a freedom-centered leader. And those attributes are power, love, and umbutu. In other words, a leader has to know how to be in their power in the right way. They have to have high self-worth, meaning they're secure in who they are, and they have to have a high degree of self-knowledge. Now, I love talking about the self-worth or love attribute of freedom-centered leadership because I really feel like in order to run your company this way and want to design your organization or team to operate in a freedom-centered way, top leadership or the leader of that team or department has to have high self-worth. We've seen this time and time again. So Nathan, totally putting you on the spot here. I like to ask leaders, okay, so on a scale of one to 10 with 10 being the highest, how would you rate your level of self-worth? I'd definitely say I'm a 10. Although if I was answering that question in a New Zealand context, it would be an eight and a nine because that's as high as you can go here, really. There's, um, you <laughs> know, a cultural culture, aspect. yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, if, if we're talking around the table, eight and a nine is really a tense. But, you know, this is something that I found for myself that I've grown into. Being able to be uh, secure and satisfied in myself, knowing that I can always do better, but I'm doing really great anyway. I think, you know, saying that you're a 10, it's not about I've got to a destination and, you know, I can't go any further. There's always so much more to grow and do and be. And so I'm I'm happy to be a 10. I think um, the only way that we can love other people is by loving ourselves. And it's something we try to embody every day is, you know, every situation, are we approaching it with love in our hearts for the other person and their situation? And high self-worth is core to that. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. What have you seen in terms of how you having high self-worth impacts the kind of environment that you want to create at Boost? I think one of the key ways that it helps is that it gives you some emotional stability. Mm. So when things happen in the business or interpersonally, being able to step back from it and say, yeah, this isn't because I'm a bad person. This is a situation that I I have to work through. I am a good person. I'm loved. I'm deserving of love and I can give love and I'm going to approach the situation that way. It's really cool because otherwise what happens, I think, is you get into kind of a reactionary mode. So Mm. you're not secure in yourself and something happens that the questions are, well, what does that mean about me? What do they think about me? How are they perceiving me? But when you can let all of that go and just focus on the issue, you've got an opportunity to be kinder and to get better results. That is so beautiful how you said that. But do you find yourself then wanting to help your colleagues, your employees develop their self-worth? Definitely. I'm very lucky to have a leadership team who we call the navigators to give a sense of what their role is. And I've got people on that team who have high self-worth and other people who are developing high self-worth and being able to provide a model for them, for the people who are moving into that, I think is really important. You know, this is something that you and I have discussed, Tracy. Sometimes people have low self-worth and it can be a massive hindrance for them in their personal growth. And other people can have low self-worth but can be moving through that to get to a different place. And so... Being someone who can help them develop and grow is something that gives me a lot of personal satisfaction. I love that. And I agree with you. 
first of all, when we say, right, that we're that 10 and, and high self-worth, I believe we all are 10s. And I think you feel that way too. Sometimes we forget, but when we're all 10s, it doesn't mean you're not improving, right? We're not talking about self-improvement. We're talking about worth, that we all have that deep and inherent worth. And maybe someone says, hey, on that one to 10, I'm a three today. I'm feeling that way right now. That's okay. If they're willing to work on it, it's great. You know, we can work on it. And I know you've done a lot of great work with your colleagues and you have so many wonderful, wonderful people on your team. And I love that point you make about the emotional stability that that high self-worth brings. And it cuts out all you know, the drama and unnecessary stuff. There's enough going on in just running a business, right? Why have all the drama? (laughs) So it does bring, yeah, it brings a very, very important sense of stability and progress to the organization. So I love that point that you make about that. That's awesome. Thank you. Well, let's go into talking about the third part of the Freedom at Work model, which is design, organizational design. And as you know, we believe the organizational design system that creates the optimal conditions for success for everyone, while also impacting the bottom line in a positive way, is organizational democracy. And we define organizational democracy as 10 principles that create a democratic system. They're principles like transparency and accountability and choice. And our listeners can download our 10 principles right off of our website. So, I want to get deep into some of these democratic principles and how you put them into operation at Boost. So let's start with, yeah, the democratic principle of purpose and vision. How do you guys put purpose and vision into operation at Boost? So through doing the World Blue Freedom-Centered Leadership Program, which, as you know, having designed it, starts with purpose and vision, a few years ago, that really drove us as an organization to become much clearer about our personal purpose and vision and our organizational purpose and vision. And that's been absolutely huge. So not only have we managed to become much clearer, we now have a situation where the whole team can articulate our purpose and vision and knows why we're doing what we're doing and how we're doing it. And we use that every day. So an example of that is when we're looking at new projects with new clients, the first thing we ask ourselves is, is doing this work going to help us fulfill our purpose and vision? Mm. Is it going to help us become more of what we want rather than just doing some work? We routinely turn down work for organizations who don't share our purpose or aren't going to be able to enable us to live our purpose. They're great people, they're great organizations, but uh, they'd be better off working with someone else. So our purpose is to make a lasting positive impact. And so we have to be able to look at them and say, is this work going to make a lasting positive impact in New Zealand or in the world? And if we can't wholeheartedly say, yes, it will, then we will give them a call and have a chat and just say, look, we would love to work with you, but we think you'd be better off with someone else. That's so great. I I was going to ask, how do you frame that with the client? You know, do you come in and kind of say, like, we're really looking for this alignment and if it's there we're going to work together and if not how do you frame that with the client so it's usually the first conversation we have with the client so Mm. before we begin to talk about what their work is we talk about our organization their organization what their values are and what their purpose is and we're absolutely explicit that we're looking to work with organizations that help can help us fulfill our purpose and create our vision of the world And you can usually see it instantly. Either their eyes light up and they're like, yeah, we want to work together because this is, we want to make a lasting positive impact. Or they look at us like we're a wee bit crazy and then they just move on. (laughs) Occasionally, you know, there's a mismatch of expectations and then it's just a conversation with love in our heart. You're great people. You're doing a wonderful job, but we're just not a great match because our values don't align closely enough. That's awesome. I love that. Because then when you say yes, right, that brings such a, a wonderful energy and alignment to the project, I would imagine. I love that you do that. Ultimately, what it means is that we're going to be working towards the same outcome. Mm-hmm. They know that we're committed to what they're trying to do because that's our purpose in the world is to achieve the results for them. So. Let's talk now about the democratic principle of transparency. I know you guys do some really cool stuff around transparency. So tell us about that. 
Yeah, so transparency is really important to us. Uh, we have a small team and a, a very flat structure, but we do have a group of leaders who we call the navigators, and their job is to make sure that we're steering the course to get to the destination that we want to get to. We meet once a week for two hours. The first hour is looking at our playbook for the quarter. Are we on track to meet our goals and meet our quarterly goal? And then the second half of that meeting is about learning. And because we are you know, in a meeting room doing that stuff, it can sometimes seem quite separate from the business. So in order to be as transparent as possible, there's an open invitation to the team to come and sit in on that meeting anytime they want. So anyone can come and sit and observe that meeting. We occasionally have uh, HR issues that we have to deal with. And so we would ask them to step out for those, just, you know, to respect the person we're talking about and to sure. meet our, our legal obligations, we need to do that. But that's quite rare. So having people able to come and observe those meetings goes a long way to making sure they understand what we're doing and how we're doing it. We also take as much of the outputs of our work and put them up in the office as we can. So we have a playbook, which we build every quarter out of our quarterly planning. We go through how we're doing on that at our team meeting every fortnight to say, look, this is where we're, we are. Uh, we have that posted on the wall. We regularly ask questions of the team anonymously. We have the answers to those posted on the wall. And in terms of our individual professional development, everybody has a poster that they work through week to week with their coach. And those are all visible to anyone who's in the office. Oh, I love that. So much information sharing. And, you know, by having your Navigator Leadership Team meetings open where anyone can come in, that just, to me, really cuts down on that whole sort of us-them mentality that can develop in organizations, right? Where like leadership said this and we don't really know what's going on. Or, you know, it's like, we're going to make all this open. All this is open. This information's open you're welcome to come and have a seat at the table and listen to what's going on and participate if needed. And it just, again, it cuts down on that drama, right? And just keeps everyone aligned and everyone feeling that sense of ownership and transparency. So I think that's great that you do that. Having that team that's helping to lead the organization, having that really open and transparent and avoiding that us and them, I think is incredibly difficult. And it's still something that we're working on every day, trying to make that better. Our leadership teams assembled from people across the organization. It's not a hierarchical team, but there's still sometimes that feeling of us and them. And so we're trying everything we can to break that down and involve as many people as possible. And transparency is a very good way to do that. Very good way to chip away at that. So that's wonderful how you put transparency into operation in a lot of different ways there. Let's talk now about the democratic principle of accountability. I know this is one that a lot of organizations struggle with. How do we help our people be more accountable and who should they be accountable to? So tell us about how you operationalize accountability at Boost. Every year, the, the navigators come up with a theme for the year. And around three years ago, we identified that our own personal accountability wasn't very good. Mm. And so our theme for the year became accountability. And this was driven in part by some of the learning that I was doing through the Freedom Centered Leadership Program. So there's a badge on accountability and that badge put a ton of great books and videos and resources in front of me. And so we took one of those books, Crucial Accountability. We uh, read it together. That led us to Crucial Conversations. We read that together. Then we got some training over a couple of days on Crucial Conversations. And we said to ourselves, we are going to become accountable to each other on the Navigator team. And the Navigator team is going to work to become more accountable to the wider organization because the leadership team is at service to the wider organization. Our job's not to tell them what to do. We're employed by them to make the business a better business. Mm. So we started to look at our accountability every week when we met. And what we've ended up with is we have our playbook, which defines where we're going, who we are, what we're trying to achieve. And on the back of that, we have a simple who, what, when. And as we're going through our meeting, it's every time that we decide something needs to be done, everyone writes it on the back of their card. Who's doing it? what they're doing, when it's going to be done by, and we review that every meeting. Okay, Nathan said he was going to do X by today. Have you done that? Why haven't you done that? How can we help you to achieve that? 
And just those really small techniques, I think, go a really long way to helping us hold ourselves accountable because when you know in front of your peers that you're going to have to tell them that you haven't done something, it's amazing how you can find the time to get it done. Oh, that's true. <laughs> and I think also those things getting captured, sometimes there'll be something on there that's sticking and not getting done. And that's a chance for the team to hold itself accountable to what's the blockage? Why are we stuck? There's something systemic here that we need to address. It's not usually that person. It's usually something bigger and wider than that. And so Again, that helps us bring it to our attention. Also, we've worked in the wider team around accountability. And so when I go out to our developers or our designers and ask them, who are you accountable to? They are able to immediately answer. They're accountable to their peers on their team, to their customers and to the company. So the wider group. So it's all about understanding who you're accountable to and why. And I think that that's something that we have improved greatly with over the last few years. Well, what really stands out to me and what you're saying is the accountability is to each other, right? It's that peer-to-peer accountability. It's not a top-down type of blamey, finger-pointing, you know, a distortion of accountability. It's that we're all in this together. Peer-to-peer accountability, that's the more democratic way of practicing that principle. I love that. Totally. And it feels so much fairer and more real, right? Like, when you're sitting cheek and jowl with people working on a project, getting it done, it's much easier to be accountable and to hold each other accountable, I think. It reminds me of, you know, one of our other world-class, World Blue Certified companies is Menlo Innovations. And Rich Sheridan's the CEO and he's been on the show. And I heard him tell this story once where people were coming in to, executives were coming in to visit Menlo Innovations and see their Freedom Center culture in operation. And, and they work in a big open environment. And one of the executives said to Rich, okay, so who's everybody accountable to? And Rich does this thing, I've experienced it because I've been there with him. And he'll say, hey, Menlo. And everyone just stops what they're doing and they say, hey, what? So he says to all of them, who are you accountable to? You know, the question that the executive asked him, he just asked all of them, who are you accountable to? And of course, the executive was expecting everyone to point at him. But instead, he tells the story that everyone kind of looked at each other and they took their arms, if you can imagine, I'm crossing my arms sort of across my chest, and they pointed to each other. And that's that peer-to-peer accountability that makes organizational democracy work. And it sounds like you guys have it going on at Boost as well. I know you have it going on at Boost as well. So that's great. I love hearing about that. Well, let's talk now about the democratic principle of dialogue and listening, because I know you guys have some wonderful best practices in this principle. And, you know, we work with a lot of different organizations here at World Blue, not just the superstars like Boost, but a lot of organizations that want to be on the path to being more freedom-centered. And, Dialogue and listening does not happen. It's a lot of monologue and definitely not listening. So I would love to hear, and I know our listeners would as well, how you guys practice dialogue and listening. It's absolutely essential. It's so easy just to talk and talk and talk and and not hear what people are saying. So we have worked to put in place multiple ways of embracing and encouraging dialogue. So a few of the things we do, we have everybody in the business has a coach. And they meet fortnightly or half an hour to an hour to help the person on their personal and career journey. That one-on-one coaching session is a dialogue. It's about hearing what that person has to say and, you know, hearing the things they're also not saying and Mm. helping them move along on their journey. We also, uh, any of our team can ask for a feedback futon at any time so they can nominate three people They get in a room together and we have a format they go through where they say one thing that's great about working with that person, one thing they can improve in a suggestion. Oh, I love that. You call that a feedback futon? Futon, yeah. I I love it. (laughs) That's awesome. We're suckers for a bit of alliteration. (laughs) And so every team also works in an agile way. So every two weeks we have a retrospective. And so that retrospective is all about dialogue. It's about hearing from the team how they're feeling. So not just how the work's going, but what are the feelings they're having about the work? How are they coming together as a team? How could they do better? And 
I think there's an assumption that, especially with developers and designers, they're somewhat reticent to talk about their feelings, but we don't find that at all. By creating that safe space, Mm -hmm. you can really get into dialogue, talk about meaningful things and take meaningful actions to improve things. We also go out every week, we use the online tool, Tiny Pulse, to ask a question of the team every week. And every month we ask, how happy are you at work? And there's an opportunity also for leaving comments on each of those questions and it's all completely anonymous and so every week in our navigators meetings we go through all the feedback we get from tiny pulse and then we try to close the loop on anything that's come up so a month or two ago someone said i don't feel valued in my work and so of course we uh, reached out to them anonymously and said look tell us more about that we want to make sure that you do feel valued and i ended up going and having a chat with them and it turned out that through some changes we were making, they were without any direction for an amount of time. And so I talked through why that was and what was happening. They completely understood. I helped communicate the timeline of how we were going to fix that and how we were going to make it better, ask what they wanted, what they needed. And they were completely happy. They understood. They could see that it was a temporary thing. But without having that feedback, we wouldn't have been able to address that and they would have still continued to feel not valued in their work. So, you know, rather than seeing those things as a criticism, it's so important to see it as an opportunity to have a conversation. That is so true. And also the fact that you take that feedback so frequently, right? It's not just, oh, we're going to wait for a year and then get it, but have that tiny pulse feedback coming in and then acting on it, right? Because reaching out to that person and letting them know that you care and they could have been easily disengaging and get them back engaged in the workplace and moving forward and serving them and their development as a person. So that's really great. I love that. And I think being able to hear as the navigators, as the leadership team, that we've let someone down and we, we need to do something about it. You know, the problem's not with them. That's some feedback on how well we're doing. And so, you know, that has to be immediately fixed. We have to work really hard because everybody needs to be valued at work, right? Feel like their work's valued. And that's a really important point that even links back to why you have to have leaders who have high self-worth because high self-worth leaders hear feedback as an opportunity to improve. They don't take feedback when something's off as a personal attack, which people who are struggling with self-worth often hear feedback as a personal attack versus as a learning moment, as Gary Ridge, CEO of WD40, another world blue company likes to say, and I love that term. I know you too know about it too. You know, that it's a learning moment, right? And so for the navigators, for all of you to sit there and go, hey, this is a reflection of how can we do better? How can we be better? It's not a reflection on your worth, right? But a reflection on how can we be accountable and be better. So I think that's just wonderful. And don't you do something too with one minute appreciations? Yeah, so this is something uh, that I read about in a book or I saw somewhere. I can't remember where, but we've been doing it for a couple of months now. So the Navigators, which is a team of five, one of them each week has a think about a team member who's been doing something particularly well or is just living our values really well. And at the end of the meeting, they have one minute talking about that person, the impact they're making in the business, how they're living our values. And then someone else on our Navigator team or take that feedback and give it to that person personally. So it's wow. just been amazing, actually. Like, it's just a, a wonderful way to finish the meeting where you have this positive good news about someone who's really making, you know, the most of the opportunities, they're living the values. And then someone goes to, gets the opportunity to go and tell them the great news about how wonderful they're doing. And so everybody benefits in that, in that situation. Someone's getting some really valuable feedback. Everybody's getting the opportunity to to hear those good news stories. It's been really good. That is so impactful because I know a lot of people, we don't get to hear, you know, hey, you're doing a good job very often, right? And work can be tough and we can get feel burned out and tired and, you know, unappreciated. So to have that and to feel like you're being seen by your colleagues is a very powerful best practice. And I think one that would inspire our listeners and something they could put into operation right away as well. So that's awesome. I love that. I love that. We've got two more principles I would love to talk about with you. Let's go into the democratic principle of choice. 
You definitely don't have democracy without yeah. choice. <laughs> so tell us how you guys practice choice. And, yeah, so choice is a big one. And this is one that, again, and I think I probably have said this for all of them, we've been working on it for years. You know, How can we get better at giving our team meaningful choice about the work they do? And because we're a small team, we can often feel constrained around it. But what we've done is we've helped our clients to understand there's value for them and membership of their teams changing over time. And then we work with the team to outline what our clients need for their project, what boost needs as an organization, and then we let them reorganize themselves into new teams around that information. Mm. So every three to four months, the whole team gets together and reshuffles around the teams to get what they need, what the client needs, and what boost needs. And so they get a chance to make a, a choice about the work they do. And so that's one area we've been able to improve on with choice. And the other is around coaching and one-on-ones. So everybody has a coach. And rather than assign people to coaches, we get the team together. We uh, write the coach's name up on a board and we say each of these coaches has X number of slots. So Rebecca might have six coaching slots. James might have four. Rebecca might have three. And then we let them negotiate and work out themselves who's going to coach with who. And it's an amazing exercise because people will say, well, look, I've been with Rebecca for the last three months and it's been really great. But I think that someone else would really benefit from working with her because I've got so much out of it. So I'm going to go and try uh, coaching with Ruka because I haven't worked with her before and someone else can go with Rebecca. So even though they're loving the experience they're having with that coach, they get a chance to go and work with someone else. Or they might as easily say, you know, I've been working with Rebecca for the last three months, but I, I just don't think that she's quite the right coach for me and I really need someone else. Is there someone else that you guys can recommend that would be good for me? And so giving them some choice about who helps them in their career, personal, professional development, I think is, is something that we're doing quite well at the moment. And it's just really important because, yeah, as you know, the, the coaching relationship, it's a very personal relationship and, and you have to be on the same page. Absolutely. And when you give people that choice, it's so empowering, right? How many times do we just feel locked in to something at work? You know, you're just like, oh, this is my manager, this is my coach, this is what I have to do. And so giving everyone the opportunity to choose which work they want to do and what team they're on and then choosing their coach so that they have the right fit. And sometimes that coaching relationship might change depending on you know, what work they're doing or what season of life they're in is very empowering. And then people don't feel, you know, straight jacketed or into one way. And the exhaustion that can come out of that sounds very, very empowering. I love it. Let's talk about one more democratic principle. This principle is absolutely critical to democracy and people often completely miss it. And it's the balance of the individual and the collective. How do we recognize both the individual and the collective and keep those in balance in the right way? Too far on the individual, the organization is going to skew too individualistically. Too far on the collective, you're going to go too far on the collective and individuals will feel neglected and unseen. So it's keeping that balance. And I know you've got some awesome best practices in this. So tell us about those. I think this is my favorite one. You know, Everything that we do when we're designing the organization, we always have to balance the individual and the collective. And I think sometimes this comes back to creating guidelines, not rules. So an example of that is we take 10% of our net profit and we put it aside every month. And that goes into a fund that the team then rolls a dice at the end of the month. And if they roll a six, it gets paid out as a bonus. So the idea is that You know, with regular bonuses, my experience in the past has been, in my imagination, the bonus is always much bigger than it actually is. (laughs) I tend to spend it in my mind three or four times over before I get it. And if for some reason I don't get the bonus, it feels like I'm being punished. Or when I do get it and it's not as big as I had imagined, or, um, you know, I can't use it three or four times, I feel kind of punished. So we were really concerned about... Uh, making sure that people had a stake in the success of the company, but that it was a positive addition to our culture. And so we got the idea of rolling the dice from Jürgen Apollo, and we implemented it and it worked really well. 
what happened was I talked about the $300,000 gap that we were looking at on the 1st of April one year. And we were talking about that in October, November. And so one of the things the team came back with was, I don't think we should roll the dice until we have a sustainable flow of work in front of us. Mm-hmm. I think this is a great example of balancing the individual and the collective because if we were to pay out, you know, twenty or thirty thousand dollars over that period, right? I think that that would be not helpful in, in the greater scheme of things. People would rather have a job at the end of the day than have got a twenty thousand dollar bonus than be out of work because we couldn't meet our, our bills. So, going back to the team and saying, "Yes, we do this rolling the dice for bonuses, and there's thirty thousand dollars sitting there to be paid out." But what we're going to do is we're going to put that on hold for the next three months while we look at this cash flow situation we've got. And the the team were quite understanding of that. And interestingly, at the start of this year, it took quite a different turn. So coming into the end of our financial year this year, which is the end of March, the team had accrued $30,000 in that bonus scheme. And when we were looking at our tax that we needed to pay, we could see that if the team rolled it before the end of the financial year, it could be a tax benefit to us. If they rolled it uh, straight after our financial year, then we would be paying our tax and having to pay that out. It was, it could be, you know, less optimal for the business as a, from a, a tax perspective. So we went to the team and said, hey, look, we think it would be a good idea to pay the bonus out now, even though we haven't rolled a six, because it would be advantageous to the business and what do you guys think about it? And of course, they were quite excited. Everybody likes getting the bonus unexpectedly. <laughs> and so they got the dice and everyone got together and then we rolled it and we got a six. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's perfect. Kind of <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> How fun. That's when you know, okay, this was the right choice. I was just going to give another example of um, balancing the individual and the collective. So looking at our coaching relationships, they're not just about the person's professional development, they're not just about what they're contributing to those and how they are providing support for others. It's also about their personal life as well because we like to recognize that we're working with whole people. We're not just working with the portion that comes to work for the day. An example of where our coaches help someone through a personal issue, I know that they don't mind me sharing, is one of our team members was feeling very nervous about proposing to his girlfriend. So his coach worked with him over a number of months to work out how he was going to propose and to get the situation that he could feel comfortable and excited to do that and coach him through the whole proposal process. And he proposed and they're now engaged to be married, which is lovely. Oh, that's awesome. See, what cannot a coach do, right? (laughs) I love that. That's so awesome. Okay, so I have a question for you about the the dice. So when you roll the dice and you get a six, in general, that means you're going to pay out the bonus or sometimes you pay out the bonus if you don't get the six. So let's say all things being normal, you roll the dice, you don't get a six. Does the bonus then carry into the next quarter or how do you guys do that? That's right. So it's done monthly. So the bonus keeps rolling up until the six gets paid. So, you know, you can have quite a lot of money in there eventually. So it helps deal with some of the even flows as well. If you know some months can be very profitable, others less profitable, but it just keeps growing and growing over time. Oh, that's so fun. That must be so fun for people to watch that pot getting bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> Come on, let's roll the six. Let's roll the six. So <laughs> I love that. That's such a fun way to do bonuses and also for everyone to be in it together where it's not just, again, the guy or gal at the top making that decision, but everybody being in it together. It's a great example of individual and collective. Thank you for that. That's an inspiring example. The bonus gets paid out equally to everybody as well. So it's just equally divided by the number of people in the business at the time, including me. So I get some of the bonus as well, which is nice, but there's no um, hierarchy of who gets more or you don't have to have been there for a certain amount of time or you know, if you leave, but there's a whole lot of money in the pot that hasn't been paid out, you, you don't get any of that. It's who's there at the time gets an equal share of the bonus. That's awesome. I'm so glad you added that point. Very, very important. Very important. Well, these are some very inspiring best practices. And it just shows you really that implementing organizational democracy is not hard when you understand the framework. But something that you have always uniquely understood too is 
practicing freedom at work, the whole model, practicing organizational democracy and the design of your organization isn't a destination. It's an ongoing journey and you have to keep it fresh in your thought. Tell our listeners, if you would, about one of my favorite things that you guys do, which is reviewing a democratic principle each week. Tell us more about that and what you've implemented there. Yeah, so we like to take 10 to 15 minutes in our navigators' meetings each week to uh, look at one of the principles and ask ourselves, how well are we doing? Where are we doing well? Where could we do better? And what, if any, changes are we going to make to move the needle on that practice? So we might look at individual and collective and say, what would we give ourselves as a score for how well we're doing on individual and collective? Yes. And we go around the table and we say, well, why did you give that score? You know, you said seven and someone would say, well, I think how we do our one-on-ones is really good, but I wonder if people are feeling the balance in their work. And so we gather all that data and then we say, okay, well, what's one thing that we could start doing that's going to improve this? What's going to move the score from a seven to an eight or an eight to a nine or a nine to a 10? How can we be more? And uh, that's really driven lots of small incremental change that I think is what builds that momentum towards fantastic places to work. I love that. I love how you keep it top of mind. Um, You guys take the Freedom at Work scorecard every year, which is how companies sort of the first step to getting certified. And it's been great to see the impact of keeping that fresh in your thought and the impact on your culture and just scores just going through the roof. I mean, you guys are exceptional and exemplary in so many ways and such an incredible model for the world, not just New Zealand, but for the world. And so where do you go from here, Nathan? I know you guys are always thinking about that next step in how to practice freedom at work at Boost. What do you see as the path forward? It's always a balance, isn't it? You have to celebrate where you've got to today, but you always have to have where you're going to next. And so about 18 months, two years ago, we started putting together a plan for Boost 2026. So that was, at the time, the destination along the journey we were going to be at by the time we reached 2026. And we started working through that by having a team day where we talked about what could be possible, what we'd like to achieve. Then we got some external help to look at what needed to happen to get there. And we've just finalized and started to measure our success against those goals. So the goals that we're looking at for 2026, uh, we will triple in revenue, we will double in size. So we will go from being a $3.4 million a year business to being a $10 million a year business. We'll go from 25 people to 50 people. We'll go from being around a third female and two-thirds male to being 50-50 male or female. We will have two CEOs, one male, one female, elected by the team, and we'll be 100% employee-owned. Dang, sign me up. (laughs) That sounds awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So we've created this very clear vision. We've just written a blog post for our site at boost.co.nz, which articulates that vision so that we can be held accountable to it. We're going to have posters up in the office that measure our progress towards that. A couple of people have put their hands up to say, hey, I want to be those CEOs. And so I'm working coaching with them at the moment to get them to where they need to be to not only survive in the job as CEO, but to absolutely thrive. And my goal is to leave Boost employee-owned with two of the world's best CEOs and to watch it go on to do amazing, great things. Oh, such an inspiring path forward. I love this idea of co-CEOs elected by the employees, a guy and a gal, man and a woman, very forward thinking, very democratic. Absolutely love it. Can't wait to see it come to fruition. And, you know, I like what you said too. I mean, there is such, the ideas we're talking about aren't kumbaya, right? There is a bottom line impact to operating your organization this way. And As you know, Nathan, as some of our listeners may know, we had a third-party analysis done and found that on average, companies that practice freedom at work have not double, not triple, but seven times greater revenue growth compared to the S&P 500. And so that's pretty powerful. And looking at that trajectory that you are on is going to be so fun to watch. So as we wrap up, Nathan, I know a lot of our our listeners are thinking, this sounds so great. 
where do I start? You know, where do I start with my team or my department or my entire organization? What would you say of where to start? Well, you know, it's like Jim Collins says, nothing's a what or a how question. It's always a who question. Who's done this before? Who's helped other people and who can help you get there? And really it's been us engaging with World Blue as an organization that's shifted the needle on this for us. So by reaching out to World Blue and asking for help, and by uh, being exposed to your wonderful team, to your wonderful resources, and the wider World Blue network, that's what's really made the change for us. And our team loves World Blue. Uh, we're just in the process of starting to offer the Freedom Centered Leadership Program to more and more of our team, especially around helping them identify their purpose and vision. We look at building that into our onboarding process. So get the people out there who are successful at this to help you. That's really the key. Oh, thanks, Nathan, for saying that. Well, it has been, you know, such a joy to work with you and your team. And we learn right along with you. But when you get to work with exceptional leaders like you are and your entire team, it's just a whole team of leaders is just so fulfilling. So thank you for that opportunity that you've given us as well. <laughs> Well, Nathan, I just love hearing this inspiration, how you bring that mindset of freedom rather than fear to boost, being a high self-worth freedom-centered leader and bringing that out in others on the team. And of course, all the ways that you guys are implementing and operationalizing organizational democracy. You are an inspiration to me, to our community, and to the world. So thank you so much for joining me today. It's been wonderful to have you with me. Uh, thank you, Tracy. It's always great to talk to you. And um, I've been enjoying your podcast and look forward to listening to many more. Sounds like a plan. Well, you can learn more about Nathan, the entire Boost team, and all the wonderful things they have going on on our website at worldblue.com. Thanks, everyone, so much for listening. And remember to live, lead, and work in freedom. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks everyone for tuning in to today's show on Freedom at Work. If you like what you heard and you're interested in finding out if you're a fit to work with World Blue, here's what I invite you to do next. Head on over to worldblue.com slash call. That's world and then blue without an E, B-L-U. And book an appointment to speak with our team. We'll get on the phone with you for about 45 minutes and explore how to help you develop a freedom-centered mindset, thrive as a freedom-centered leader, or build a freedom-centered workplace culture. Remember, living, leading, and working in freedom rather than fear in order to unleash your full potential does not happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make it happen. We have over 20 years of experience working all over the world with top leaders and brands from small businesses to Fortune 500 companies, helping them achieve results with our proven methods and courses. To see if we can help you do the same, head on over to worldblue.com call and book a call with our team now. I'm Tracy Fenton, and I can't wait to connect with you soon.